0: morning uh, after a a short hiatus uh, from the book of Romans we're going to pick it back up chapter 13 so if you would please open there we're going to look at two verses this morning but I'm going to read the first seven and this will be an introductory study of this text be more of a teaching than preaching, really. Um, but I, I want to address um, questions that usually arise within people's minds when it comes to this text. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, Romans 13. I'll read verses 1 through 7. And then in the next hour, we'll look at the first two verses. God's Word reads. One must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Want to cheer about that one? (laughs) (laughs) For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This ends the reading of God's word. This is God's word for his people. You may be seated. Well, again, after a short hiatus from Romans, we're back into it. Last time that I was with you, Um, I I looked at or I led you in looking at Revelation chapter 5 in order that we have a correct picture of Jesus in our mind before we go into this text. And again, to refresh your memory, we see there in chapter 5, Jesus, a call goes out rather, who's worthy to open this seven-sealed scroll, sealed in the front and back, who's worthy to not only open it, but to implement the content within. The call goes out and nobody's found worthy. But there was one. A lion from the tribe of Judah. That's what John hears. When he looks, he sees a lamb as though it had been slain. Therefore, by way of the work of Christ the life, the death of Christ, he's the only one found worthy to implement the content, and the content within is the preordained plan of God for his universe unto the end. That's how we should see Jesus. He is ruling and reigning now and forevermore. So that served as a kind of lead in to the most important chapter in the Bible regarding how believers are to un- understand and interact with human authorities and governments. And, beloved, when we rightly understand this text, we can avoid some of the mistakes and the many disasters that uh, have been made throughout um, church history, no doubt. And we can think correctly about government, about its role, and about our responsibility as believers. Now, the Apostle Paul's great treatise to the believers in Rome affirms for us, that is, all people who are true Christians, all those that are born again, are indeed justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, vindicated of all wrongdoing by life, the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and are actually declared as righteous. Amen. In this we rejoice. In company with our privilege, that is our privileged responsibility within the body of Christ. We've been looking at these things for well over a year now. Okay, 11 chapters of godly grace turns into the instruction for godly living. And you know, I believe that it's possible for us to be so overwhelmed with the great doctrinal truths in the glories of God's work and salvation to and through his church that when we come to this, the 13th chapter, we we perhaps think of it as a bit mundane or insignificant. It's not mundane. It's not insignificant. And that is Paul's instruction with regard to the role of the state In the life of the believer, in other words, this is the secular life of the Christian. The secular life of the Christian. Now, Paul has taught us a lot about our new identity in Christ. We've been called out from among the world. That's what church means, called out ones. We've been called out. And in chapter 12 and verse 2, he told us that we're not to be conformed to this world. We're not to be conformed to the philosophies and the ways of the world. But we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that must constantly occur. We continually have to be renewing our mind by way of the word of God. Because you'll be confronted with all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of ways of thinking, within any community, and we must test all those things in light of the word of God. Now, the one issue looming in the shadowy background of this letter, this epistle, that is Paul's letter to the church in Rome is the existence and authority of Rome. Okay, not the city, but the empire. That is the earthly kingdom of imperial Rome. And the Christian's responsibility within the political and governmental center of human power. And this was a powerful government. History describes the Roman Empire at this time, Paul's time, as a unique representation of human authority. Paramount, powerful, very decadent, and incredibly cruel. Friends of Rome were treated very well, Roman citizens enjoyed ample benefits. But enemies and rebels of Rome, they were trampled and they were destroyed. And the populace, who were not citizens, were slaves. So this letter written to the church, a people redeemed and and living in the very center of the Roman world, and in the capital of Rome itself, would have very naturally included a portion of instruction for living under government. Some of whom were Jews. Okay, the church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews in that day were the most present prejudiced people of the day. They were incredibly prejudiced. They were very resistant to outside political authority, obviously having experienced much oppression over their history as a people, you know, under the thumb of foreigners, time and time again. Now, Judaism as a religion was under the protection of Rome, uh, but when Christianity began to emerge through the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, persecution would increase and continue to increase. So the question would have been, how now are we, as children of God, Christians, to align ourselves? You know, are we to be loyal citizens of the Roman Empire who declare Caesar as Lord? Do we declare him as Lord? Or do we join with others in rebellion against the powers therein? That would have been a very common question in their day. So addressing a people made up of both Jews and Gentiles, Paul attends to certain issues that would have permeated the atmosphere of this infant church where in the midst of imperial Rome, Jewish believers would have been citing Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 5, chapter 17, verse 15, which reads, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers. You shall set his king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay, that is to say, as God's chosen covenant community, national Israel was not to submit to any pagan king, Israel's king must be a Jew. Okay, needless to say, it would be very difficult for Jewish believers to adopt a Christian view of the state, especially now that Israel's role as God's divinely chosen nation had come to an end with the dawn of the Messianic Age. You know? Israel's national purposes have been fulfilled. Israel's national purposes have been fulfilled, even though God's purposes for Jewish people are not. There is no more role for Israel as a nation during the future course of redemptive history. That would have been very difficult for any Jewish believer to accept early on. Very difficult. Because Jews, they couldn't help but to think of their history. 400 years of oppression under Egyptian rulership. And once they were freed from that, years later, because of their own unfaithfulness, because of their own covenant unfaithfulness, they would be conquered by foreign nations under the thumb of foreign Gentile kings. So with their own history in mind, the motto of the Roman Empire is now Caesar is Lord, and they know very well that the motto of Christianity is that Jesus Christ is Lord. See the tension? (laughs) Pressure, man. That's pressure. So with that context in mind, that's the context. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Be subject, he says. That's that word that we love, submission. (laughs) We are rebels at heart. Written to believers under the heavy hand of Rome. Now, this has to be in our mind. Any rightful power of man, of one man over another, one person over another, is derived from and delegated by God. There are numerous levels of authority set over us. The first one begins in our own families. The husband's the head of the wife. Christ is head of the man. God's the head of Christ. Children are to be in submission to their parents. Children, did you know that? It's God's plan that you obey your parents. Amen? And if you don't obey your parents, you're not obeying God. And when we don't obey the Bible, you're the grown-ups, we're not obeying God. That's why we need grace, because we're disobedient. Amen? All through life, we have teachers, bosses, police, city council, right up the line to federal government. It's very orderly because God is a God of order. And in our sinful nature, one of the things that we kick against is authorities placed over us. All of our sins really are a revolt against authority. Ultimately, against the governing authority of God himself. We'll just say amen altogether. Amen to that. Thank God for his grace. For the perfectly obedient one. The God-man. In our place. Now, if we as sinful creatures have a propensity to bow up and we do, to bow up against creator God, how much more are we prone to resist the lesser authorities that he has placed over us like school, police, state, and nation? (laughs) See, as Christians, we are called to be stellar examples. We are called to be models of civil obedience. Right? We're not called to take over City Hall. So Paul begins this section with a universal statement. Okay, a universal statement. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's simple, but it can be complex. And we're going to address some of the complexities this morning, I hope. So as believers, do we pledge our allegiance to America? Yeah, I hope you do. Hey man, I'm a veteran, man. I fly a flag at my house. I love veterans. I love our I love America. But I pledge my ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ, the ultimate sovereign. Now, as part of a community, this one out there, we're part of another community that supersedes all others, and that's called Supra, supra national allegiance. We're Christians. Now, Jesus has established a kingdom. Amen? It's already been established. Bobby was up here a little while ago and said when Jesus comes back, he'll establish the kingdom. What he meant to say is that he's going to consummate the kingdom he's already established. Amen? It's already established. He knows that. He just slipped. It's consummation. No serious. Amen, brother? He's established a kingdom not from this world, but has established it in this world. Okay? And collecting as he, he is and has been subjects for his kingdom from throughout this world. Sinner saved by grace. That's why we pray as we're instructed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that now. His kingdom has come, his kingdom is coming, and it's increasingly being seen in this age. Jesus explained that in his teaching in Matthew 13. It's being increasingly made visible and will come in its final form when the king returns in power and great glory. So our core identity is an eternal kingdom. That's why we're called to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. So in this context, the prevailing question of the early church would have been, how does the lordship of Christ play into all of this? Is he lord and king of all or not? You know, they would have asked the question, as many do in our day, was Jesus involved in politics? Now, in a very narrow and direct sense, no, he most certainly was not. He never formed a political party, program, or protest. Right? Right? Now, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, he said in John 18.36, my kingdom's not from the world, but has come to earth. It came to earth with the king. Amen? He's the king. He's the king. He said to his disciples, as he sent them out, gave them the great commission, he said, all authority in heaven and what? And on earth has been given to me as the God-man. God incarnate glorified. Now make no mistake, that is the ultimate political statement of all political statements. <laughs> Can't get around it. So conversely, and in a much broader sense, his entire ministry was political. Okay, but m- let me clarify something. We define politics as the science of government. Okay, it's the, it's the art of living together in community. Christ, creator God, the Logos, that is the word of God, came into the world. He came in among governing authorities that he himself established. He dwelt among it in a radically different way. The creator became incarnate in order to share life within the human community that he himself created. And in turn, when he died and rose again, he sent out those, his followers, to do the same thing in a radically different way. Are you with me? So, while we yet exist in this world, we are to submit to the governing authorities that are set over us. So this is a verse that informs us that we need not only governing authorities, but God has set them in place. We need them. If you did not have them, it would be chaos. We should praise God. Will you see the pol- do you, How do you feel when you see the police? Huh? You should th- thankful. Amen. I have no problem with police coming down my street. I have no problem with driving by the police or walking by the police. I used to, but I no longer do. (laughs) But by the grace of God, I'm very thankful. The only time I get a little jolted is when I'm going down the freeway and I'm maybe going too fast. But I was going with the flow of traffic. (laughs) All national offices, all thrones receive their authority from the ultimate sovereign authority. And all civil authorities, beloved, are a result of what's known as common grace. Common grace. I'm going to go on to explain what common grace is before we move on to this. Okay, all believers and all unbelievers alike are recipients of common grace. Common grace is not to be confused with saving grace or salvific grace. You as Christians are recipients of salvific grace, special grace. The world experiences common grace, and we experience that same grace with them as a saved people. The great theologian, theologian Louis Burkhoff, defined common grace as that grace which, quote, curbs the destructive power of sin, maintains in a measure the moral order of the universe, thus making an orderly life possible, Distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents among men, provokes the development of science and art, and showers untold blessings among the children of men. End quote. Very good definition. That's another way of saying, beloved, that common grace is enjoyed by believers as well as unbelievers. Difference being, believers understand its source you have the ability to understand the source of common grace. Unregenerate people don't, in a personal way. This is the doctrine, it was the doctrine rather of common grace that Paul had in mind when he wrote 1 Timothy 4.10, when he dictated it, which says, God is Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That is, the fact that sinners aren't cast immediately into judgment is due to his providential mercy. Mercy. Not getting what you do deserve. In that sense, he's the Savior of all people. God also blesses mankind, restraining our evil nature. We studied this back in Romans 2, in verse 15, which tells us Gentiles, that is, pagans, who do not have the law of God, they show that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Conscience is a gift. Conscience is the soul's voice and when it's violated, it cries out within the mind to believer and unbeliever alike. Just as speed bumps on a, on a road serve to warn believers by jolting us, conscience works to jolt us out of moral slumber. I'm talking about unbelievers right now. But conscience, we know, can be silenced. It can be seared, like with a hot iron. It can be killed, 1 Timothy two, individually and nationally. Now, he provides his common grace universally because he, Jesus Christ alone, sustains the natural order. Remember Hebrews 1, verse 3, notice. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, he really is the king of the universe, amen? He holds it up by the word of his power. That is, Jesus preserves the universe from destruction until the moment that his voice removes all but his unshakable kingdom and its inheritors, the church. Now, Paul took that truth, that truth of Hebrews 1 verse 3, and he brought that concept down to earthly proportions. When he stood on Mars Hill before the philosophers of the day, before all the learned men of the day, in Acts 17 he said this, God gives to all mankind... Life and breath and what? Everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Okay, that informs us that the rising and falling of empires is according to God's sovereign outline, worked out by way of his providence from throughout time. He really is in control. We really need not fret. We ought to be passionate, but we need not fret. We need not to be little fretlings, amen? In other words, there's only one ultimate king. There's one ultimate authority. There is one ultimate kingdom. All other kings, all other kingdoms have power only in so far as he allows them to have power and authority. See, God, in other words, God is not a spectator of anything. He never wrings his hands in despair. He never wonders why. And that includes the political process and all thrones and all dominions therein. Amen? Amen. See, kings and rulers do have authority. It's a delegated authority, but they do not have absolute authority. And that's the problem. Many of them think they do. Historically, Nebuchadnezzar is one example. Notice again verse 1b. There's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. What's the authority? It's the eternal right as creator to impose obligation on his creatures. It's authority because he is the author. And because he is the author, he therefore has the authority to do whatever he wants with whomever he desires to do that which he wants to do. So, there's no authority except from God. That is to say, beloved, the church and the state are both established and governed by God, the sovereign author and authority. Okay, do we understand this, beloved? We must understand this. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone ruling in the world is godly. Amen? It simply means that God is the inventor of government and you need to subject yourself to the government because it is of God. Any attitude of anarchy against legitimate government is an attack on the author of government, God. Do do we realize this? A lot of Americans on the news don't. A lot of Christians I see with their stupid signs, some of them are stupid because it doesn't rightfully represent God. That's why they're stupid. Not the people, but the signs. Okay, so the question that you have in your mind now is this. That's why this is introductory. (laughs) Okay, to what extent then do we obey governing authorities? Right? There's got to be some limit. Now, within the framework of God's government, which is a good thing, government is good. If you're one of those rickety old Americans who just is always complaining about the country, travel abroad just a bit. (laughs) Just a bit. I'll give you a list of places to go and you will come back kissing the ground. You will. My son just traveled to Paris and was happy to be home. Paris is great. He was just happy to be home on American soil. So to what extent do we obey? Within government, Satan's at work. Amen? Did Jesus establish his church? <laughs> yeah. Does Satan work against it? Yes. Of course. There's spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We're called to put on the whole armor of God. So are we then always to unconditionally obey civil authorities? The answer is very simple no. There are limits to civil authority, and we see many examples of this in Scripture, and we just want to look at a few. You know, whenever man-made laws are enacted which contradict God's law, his word, his mandate, civil disobedience actually becomes a Christian duty. The question is, how do we do it? When Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew wives to kill all the newborn boys, they refused to obey, and rightly so. Rightly so. In Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict that all his subjects must fall down and worship his golden image. In response, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no. They refused to obey. They suffered the consequence of their disobedience, but God, in his sovereign providential will, decided, decreed, to deliver them. But that's not always going to be the case, amen? Physical deliverance isn't always the case. You just get to go right to heaven if you die by the sword. What's greater? Being delivered from a fire to continue to walk on the earth or go to heaven? To go to heaven. He'll grant you the grace if you need it. King Darius made a decree that for 30 days nobody was to pray to any God or man except him. Daniel refused to obey. When the Sanhedrin banned the preaching of the name of Jesus to the apostles, they refused to obey. So in each of these cases, their defiance showed allegiance to the highest authority. That's why Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. In Calvin's words, obedience to man must not become disobedience to God. And of course, there have been times when God raises up leaders to rebel against government in, in order to deliver His people. But we are always, beloved, everywhere, to obey the authorities over us—home, employment, the police, the government—unless that authority, unless that authority, commands us to do something that God forbids, or forbids us to do what God commands like a a believing wife who has an unbelieving husband and she's trying to be submissive to her husband because that's what the Bible says and the husband says, you will not go to church. She will say, yes, I will. Right? Because the Bible says, do not forsake the gathering of yourselves from one another. And she can disobey in a respectful manner. Amen? Now, in our day, Anytime God or his will is conveyed in culture, culture cries out what? Separation of church and state. You can't talk about God here. This is a public place. You just need to go in your little community and your little churches and talk about him there. Don't bring him up here. Well, the problem is many Christians, when they receive the philosophy of the world, they begin to adopt that same cry, and they begin to make a hardline distinction between what's known as the sacred and the secular. The sacred and the secular. And they'll go as far as to say that the only way God's people can receive the blessing of God or be a blessing, is within the confines of that which is sacred, and that is the gathering of the saints under word and sacrament. This can go bad quick. That is what's known as a hyper two-kingdom view of the world. Some hyper two-kingdom adherents insist that post-fall culture is utterly profane and that God can't possibly bless you or others out there. Some will go as far as to say that to teach biblical principles for living in a, sexual, in a, in, in a secular world is actually an unbiblical practice. And all they're doing is adopting a a kind of hyper-Calvinistic view, saying that believers ought never to speak against social evils. And then they, Christians, not unlike the world, also begin to cry out, anytime God is mentioned out there, Hey, separation of church and state, as though the state is autonomous. And that is exactly what separation of churches, church and state has come to mean the absolute separation of the state from God. The state is not autonomous. No state has ever been autonomous. No state is its own sovereign. The state begins to declare its ultimate absolute independence from God. That is to say this, this is creatures declaring autonomy from their creator. Does that ever work? It never works. It never has worked. That they're free to rule apart from any and all considerations of the things of God and then some uninformed believers or ill-informed believers adopt that kind of thinking. They forget that Christ's church actually serves as conscience for a nation. We confront it, but not through the political process, and let's not get mixed up here. We don't confront culture through the political process, amen? We confront culture by godly living and preaching the gospel, the whole counsel of God. They won't like it but that's okay. They won't like it. We're not to be pacifistically disposed. You know, isolating or separating ourselves, coming in our holy huddle and just shuddering. Can't talk about God out there. There'd never be martyrs if that were the case. Come on now. When a nation's collective conscience is seared, it begins to work as an agent. It exists as an agent of opposition to the one true sovereign. It's always been that way. And we begin to see it unfold, even like in our own culture. Calling good evil and evil good. Homosexual marriage is not only accepted, but it's celebrated. You have abortion and a myriad of other things. And then the culture claims that the only absolute in society is that there are no absolutes. And the only accepted form of intolerance is that which is aimed against those who are intolerant of the actions and behavior of those who Romans one twenty eight look at it refuse to see fit to acknowledge God as as God. The consequence of which judicial abandonment context unbelievers which can and has occurred on national levels throughout time. You remember Jeremiah? He was called to be a prophet to what? To the nations. (laughs) To the nations. To pagans. He went and preached to pagans. He preached the demise of governments who saw themselves as sovereign and independent from God. And then they were judged. And they weren't in covenant with God. They didn't have the oracles of God. They didn't have the Decalogue. But what they did have? was the consciousness of God in their heart, which they denied and therefore seared. Now, the extreme manifestation of a government whose collective conscience is seared results in the likes in the likeness of, of, of an Auschwitz, of a Sudan, of a Rwanda, resulting in state-led genocide. I was in Rwanda and stood at a gravesite of 250,000 people who were slaughtered. 250,000 black people who were slaughtered by other black people who weren't of the same tribe. So the question usually comes: should Christians stand and cry out against those kinds of atrocities? Should they rebel against those kinds of atrocities or remain passive and silent and subject to the state? These are serious questions, right? These all arise in our minds. Years ago, a man by, by the name of Richard Pied, he wrote a fab, fabulous essay entitled, "Why did Protestants welcome Hitler?" Very interesting. Now, some of the factors were no doubt doubt cultural and racist, but others were clearly theological. Okay, so follow me on this. What it was, was the church's own skewed doctrine that rendered them in that day powerless to speak against the social evils of the 1930s and the 1940s. Because Hitler was keenly aware of one of their doctrines, and that was a hyper two-kingdom view. So Hitler exploited their weakness. He manipulated them and their doctrine, deliberately using their hyper two-kingdom teaching to remind the church to keep its mouth closed. Now, those who were opposed remained silent in, large, in a large part due, due to the grip of their own frenzied hyper two kingdom doctrine. So he used this dichotomous doctrine, this hard line uh, um, division between the sacred and the secular on more than one occasion to keep the clergy in their place anytime they got a bit too nosy or objectionable with regard to his conduct as Führer, as president. As ruler. Now, there was another Lutheran theologian and pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who did not adhere to that doctrine. He actually became part of the Jewish rescue action. But he also got involved uh, with plans with the German military intelligence office to actually assassinate. Um, Hitler, he was arrested by the Gestapo in 1943, put into a concentration camp, and they hanged him in 1945, 23 days before Germans' um, surrender. Now, was that right? To be involved with the assassination plot of Hitler? I, I would say no. I would say he went too far there. Okay, but another question. Was the civil rights movement of America right? where where people marched against and rebelled against certain aspects of the law. You know, that blacks couldn't use the same bathrooms and the same drinking fountains as white people. You know, what, what, was that too far? Was the American Revolution sin? I mean, it was resistance to authority. Yep. Things to think about. See, what we learn here in Romans 13 is that living here, Requires respect towards authority. Okay? God calls for order over disorder. He calls for authority over the absence of authority, but it doesn't say that we are to have no interest or engagement of what or who that authority is. There's a difference between a man and his office, because a man in his office, like Hitler, can be a criminal, he can be villainous, he can be wicked. Pursuing his course of civil authority with iniquity. Things to think about. So there's a limit to authority of the state. Did you notice this? Note, Paul uses the word God eight times in seven verses. The government of God, or God's universe, beloved, is not structured as a democracy. Amen? God rules in soul monarchy, a soul monarchy. He rules his universe, ultimately as a theocracy, if you will. His universe. He is ruler. He is king. And he places certain people in these positions. So the next question that you have in your mind is this, some of you. Okay, why then are some leaders allowed into office? Perhaps, perhaps as a judgment upon the people. Okay there's a saying well worth considering quote people get the kind of government they deserve people get the kind of government they cry out for I mean that's what we see in Romans 1 basically But make no mistake democracies and dictatorships alike are under his control he historically balances one nation off against another. He uses one nation to chastise another. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, kingdoms come, kingdoms go, and behind them all is God overruling the affairs of men. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, depressions, disasters, are all woven into the fabric of history. We must not forget this. Verse 1. All that exist have been instituted by God. In other words, God is well-pleased with government, beloved, because it's from him. We ought to be well-pleased with our... Not well-pleased with every aspect of it, we're well-pleased that we live in a place that has a government. That's legit. Don't be too quick to bow up. As we all can. Amen? They've been appointed by God by single, supreme authority, and appointment. So should we then simply disengage and become pacifistic because God is sovereign over it all, beloved? Do we just simply disengage, become pacifists, don't vote, don't speak, don't reason, don't evaluate or ever argue for political change? Is that what we ought to do? We can answer that question with a a question. Okay, God is sovereign over it all, right? That doesn't mean we don't have the right to speak, but may we do it with respect. God is sovereign over salvation. Should we not preach? Should we not proclaim the gospel because he's sovereign? The answer to both is no. Of course we preach. Of course we speak. But, beloved, to exercise anarchy, to be rebellious or participate in riotous activity is in opposition to those in office and therefore in opposition to God who put them in office office. Don't even show them dishonor. Because we're instructed, as we'll see, next time or the time thereafter, that we're called to honor their position. You just do it. (laughs) Those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, there's a big therefore in verse 2. Okay, therefore, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur what? Judgment. It's a natural conclusion to verse 1. In resisting in rebellion, you may obtain the accolades of people. They may call you a hero. A oh, way to go, brother. Way to sit out in your tent in front of City Hall. You know, and throw stuff at the building. Way to go, brother but all you're going to do is invite the judgment of those who bear the sword, and they do not bear it in vain. Right? So when we disobey lesser authorities, we're disobeying Christ. say so, so far, we learn, when any ruler or power assumes to himself the authority and attributes of God, he violates the person and character of God, whether he believes in God or not. That's beside the point. And to him, no man should ever submit. When that man says, you will not gather for worship, that's when we disobey. When that man says, you will not own a Bible, that's when we disobey. When that man says, preacher, you will not preach against any cultural taboo of the day, that's when we disobey. Yet at the same time, beloved, this is very important, Paul is not saying that we have to oppose every single injustice that is performed by government because if you did that, you couldn't any, live anywhere. Come on now, amen? You couldn't be a citizen anywhere. There is no perfect government. They're fallen just like you. Put yourself in their place. Legislation is about restraining evil. Evil. Legislation is good. Legislation is about restraining evil. Restraining murder. Okay? Murder. Stealing. Lying. You know, libel and, 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 and slander are against the law. Okay, I just read. Murder, stealing, lying. Okay, where, where, does, where, where does those laws have their roots? In the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments of Almighty God. That's where they come from even the worst governments that restrain evil is better than no government, than any government that is not. Right? So let's be thankful for what we do have. Now imagine this. Okay, now, you're, now we're going to go back to the first century. First century Christian. The big issue of the day was taxes. <laughs> the big issue of the day were taxes. Christians would have been asking this question. hey, should I pay taxes that, now that I'm a Christian in imperial Rome because after all some of my tax money is going to a government that is actively involved in persecuting my fellow brothers and sisters legitimate question if I pay taxes I'm paying taxes that will at least go in part towards their persecution the same questions arise today with taxation you know abortion on demand and all that type of thing Paul is telling us we don't have to stress ourselves out on these kind of matters. Because there's no end to that kind of consideration in any government. Amen? There's no end. Don't pay your taxes and see what happens. (laughs) The man will get you. The man will get you. We simply made a mistake eight years, six years ago and got audited. Personal, not the church, not the church. My wife and I made a mistake, man. They, but they ended up making a bigger mistake. We just now have to prove it. But until then, I got to pay the man twenty five thousand bucks. I got to pay the man. I'm not going to not pay the man, <laughs> right? Because if I do, I will incur greater judgment from the man, from the government, which God has placed in order, in position. Think about this. Joseph and Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, living their life, right? Living their lives. She has the glorious Son of God in her womb. And Caesar Augustus makes a decree. They they all must go, all people must go register in their own hometown in order to what? To be taxed. They didn't bow up. No resistance, but full submission to the request. See bottom line it costs money to have government, right? It cost a lot of money to have government of the Roman Empire. Most of the taxes went towards military and their incredible construction buildings and bridges and aqueducts. You know, they didn't simply lay a pipe underground in the Roman Empire to transfer water hundreds of miles. They made incredible incredibly beautiful water ducts which would be a challenge for engineers to create to this day. Amazing. That stuff costs money. That's why the ruins of the imperial Rome are the most beautiful in the world, I think. Joseph and Mary made no excuse. You know, they didn't sit back and go, you know, Joseph, remember the angels that came to us? I'm carrying the Son of God, you know, and they want to tax us? I think they can work it out. Besides that, I don't like the direction that Rome is taking. (laughs) No! Many Christians don't like the direction that our government is taking. Moral choices that our government is making. Legalizing gay marriage, abortion, and countless other things. Are those against and contrary to the word of God? Yes, absolutely, of course they are. That, however, is not cause for generating an attitude that is rebellious towards the government that God has set in place above us and before us for whatever reason he has done so. Amen? See, we have to remember that our God is king. We know how the story ends. We know how it ends. We know who's enacting the seven-sealed scroll. Who's worthy to open it and is carrying it out is Jesus Christ, who's on the throne, ruling and reigning, king of heaven, king on earth. He's the sovereign over all other rulers and kings. He's the king of kings and lords and of lord of lords. That's what that means. Notice verse 4, which we're not going to get at to today. We're almost done. Civil authorities are God's what? Servants. Whether they acknowledge it or not, they might hate God and not they may be atheistic. They're his servants. They just don't know it yet. We must remember God is king. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess one day Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Until then, we are called to submit to their divinely mandated authority and render to them the honor that they deserve. Why do they deserve it? Because God says they're my servants. I placed them there. Can we engage with profound love for the country? Yeah, I hope we would. I was almost going to wear a blue, uh, white and blue bandana the other day to my friend's house because I used to wear bandanas all the time years ago when I was young. And and I was thinking, what do you think, honey? And she's like, you're not 28 anymore. (laughs) So I didn't wear it. But I do love the country but ultimately we are made made for and citizens of another country which is a heavenly country. Hebrews 11. The great role of heroes of the faith. Just look at this. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, okay, thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city made without hands, made without hands. So we must no doubt, beloved, make a proper distinction between Christ's spiritual kingdom and civil kingdoms, but we must not take a hyper two-kingdom view of it. That's what I'm trying to get at. Since we're in Christ, we're citizens of two kingdoms, both which God sovereignly rules over. Amen? He sovereignly rules over them both. It's all His our citizenship is in heaven, has been granted to us because of God's mercy in Jesus Christ and that citizenship is on the basis of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of perfect righteousness imparted to us by way of Jesus Christ and his imputation on the cross preceded by his perfect holy life in our place. That's why we're citizens of that kingdom. Amen? We're also citizens of America because we were born here and we live here. We're not called to become pacifistic and withdraw, but to reach out. What, within a political agenda? No, with neighborly love. The freedoms and prosperity we enjoy truly are gifts from God. So don't stop praying for the country. Amen? When you get mad watching the news... You can pray for the guy who's making you mad. Right? Oh, I get mad all the time. I get mad when I watch TBN. Why are the heck are you watching TBN, you ask? <laughs> to keep up on what's being taught to people, many of whom are Christians. Amen. To keep your finger on the pulse of evangelicalism and to keep a pulse uh, a finger on the pulse of what culture's doing and saying because why? because many times the philosophies of the world enter into God's people because they're not being transformed by the renewal of their mind that's why we must be prepared to stand on Christian principles we must be prepared to stand with Christian on Christian convictions even if it costs us and you know what beloved you will ne- if you never proclaim God's truth you'll never look like a fool If you never want to look like a fool, don't proclaim his gospel. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue. In other words, say, because God said so. If you never do, you'll never be rejected. You'll never be called politically incorrect. You'll never be referred to as a bigot or intolerant. So if you don't want to, then don't say anything about the word of God. With regard to social issues. But don't do it with hatred. Don't do it with condescension. You can do it without hatred. You can do it without disrespect. You can do it with passion. You can do it with power, but it's power from outside of you. It's by the way of the power of the Holy Spirit. You can do it with intelligence, and you can do it with persuasion if it's according to the will of God. Amen? That's what Paul did. A Paul, he attempted to convince unbelievers of truth in imperial Rome. I'll close with this. Paul dictates this letter to the church of Rome. Years later, he'll be in Rome and he'll have his head lopped off for proclaiming the truth in the midst of imperial Rome. Acts 28, 23 says from morning till evening he expounded to them testifying to the kingdom of God trying to what? Convince them. That's what we're trying to do. Convince people of the truth. To convince them. And you can only do it if the power of the Spirit's there. Amen? Only, only the Spirit can do that. So if they're not convinced, you don't have to fret. It's not on you. Amen? It's on Him. Trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law and Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what He said. Others disbelieved. And then in, in Acts, the, the final verse final two verses of Acts 28 he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance he proclaimed it baby the truth in the midst of imperial Rome which was a result of the sword but he didn't do it with hatred And he never did it with disrespect to the office of those that God has placed over him. Amen? May we, by the grace of God, do the same. So we should care about the things we see in culture. But we should remember, above all, beloved, that we are heavenly citizens. And that in that country, God is always honored and Christ is always loved and always proclaimed. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you.